This episode of One Thing Real Quick is brought to you by Libro FM. For years, I got my audiobooks from Audible, mostly because I thought I didn't really have much of a choice. But Libro FM is an option, and it's actually a better choice. Their app is great. They have the same selection at the same price as their competition. But the best thing is that they support your local bookstore. When you create your account, you can select a local bookstore, and each time you make a purchase or your subscription renews, that bookstore gets a cut. So instead of supporting a company that threatens your favorite local bookstore, you're actually supporting your favorite local bookstore. Listeners to this podcast can use the offer code OTRQ. That's just the abbreviation, the initials of the show, one thing real quick. Offer code OTRQ at Libro.fm and get three audiobooks for the price of one. So go now, check it out, go to Libro.fm and use the offer code O-T-R-Q and get some free audiobooks. All right, on to the show. Yeah, and, and what was this area like when you first arrived? Well, it was, there's no, were no roads in there. So we backpacked and eventually bought a, a riverboat. There was a bad canyon, so we had to run the canyon in our riverboat. We, we were basically living in the wilderness. There was no uh, cleared land or anything like that. Our story starts in the mid-1970s. Actually, I guess geologically speaking, it starts way, way before that. But we're, we're not going to go back that far. To get an idea of where this is taking place, picture in your mind a map of the state of Alaska. And if you drop your finger right into the center of the map, you're right on top of Fairbanks or you're going to be pretty close. Now, if you go due east, eventually you'll come to the border between the U.S. and Canada, between Alaska and Canada. Go about nine miles, and that's where we're at. Nine miles from that border, there's this little homestead. And I guess at this point, it's not it's not yet a homestead, but soon enough, it will be. It's right near this river called the 40 Mile River, which is about 100 kilometers from a small town called Dawson City, Yukon Territory in Canada. The population at this time, the mid-1970s, is about 700 people. We put up a wall tent and we ended up spending the winter, even at 40 below, in a double-layered tent because there wasn't time to build a, a cabin. So eventually, though, we, we built a originally a six-sided log cabin and the reason for that was we we were doing it all by hand and the logs had to be short enough for my husband and I to move them around by hand then as we had children we we had to expand our original six-sided cabin so we built a second story we built new rooms off a couple of the sides so it's kind of a free-form organic log cabin it's it's home did you enter this life with experience in cabin building and no. trapping and no. goldsmithing <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and mining. No. And so you are no stranger to learning how to make stuff, how to adapt your skills to different things. That's right. By necessity, we, you know, we, we had to learn how to garden. We had a, a, when we, our very first garden, we had a This is Leslie us. Chapman. And my hope is that after listening to this interview, we all start to think a little bit differently about objects, specifically about their stories. 
If you take a minute and look around, you start to notice the objects, the stuff that decorates each moment of your day. You've got things like tools, you're wearing clothing, probably. There's a bike or a car or shoes that take you from place to place. Maybe there's a ring on your hand. Everything around you was designed and then made and then displayed in some kind of physical or online store and then purchased by you and then used or ignored and forgotten. Have you ever thought about the stories that are contained in each of these objects? Forget the idea that if walls could talk, what if all these objects around us could talk? What if they could tell you where they came from? how they were conceived, and then where each part was made, and where the materials for those parts and components came from. It's a little bit overwhelming. The stories in whatever room that you're sitting in right now could fill libraries. Think just about your phone for just a minute. Mine has this stamp on the back, and it tries to simplify this story. It's designed in California, assembled in China. But the ideas that make up the design and the materials that make up my phone. Each has a story of its own. The glass, the camera, the speakers, and the screws that make up and hold everything together. I think you get the point. It's it's really impossible to comprehend these objects and the stories that make up these objects. Well, today my guest is going to share with us a story of object that that we can actually comprehend. It's a story about the jewelry that she designs and crafts by hand in her studio, made out of gold, not her studio, but the jewelry is made out of gold, which she and her husband mine themselves in quite literally the middle of nowhere. My name is Evan McDonald. You're listening to One Thing Real Quick. It's a new podcast where each week We mine for gold nuggets of creative insight and stories from creative leaders by focusing each interview around a single question. This week, I ask Leslie Chapman about the importance of the connection that exists between the materials that she uses and the objects that she makes. I'm Leslie Chapman. I'm a gold jewelry designer and fabricator, a goldsmith from Dawson City, Yukon, in Canada. How long have you been in Yukon Territory? How long have you been in this region? Almost, well over 40 years, almost 45 years. And you and your husband, are you both from this area, or did Uh, you... No, we're not. We're from Calgary, Alberta, and and we moved there in the mid-70s, which was kind of... I mean, I guess it's history now, but it was part of this sort of back to the land movement. So we did an extreme version of back to the land and moved into the basically Arctic or subarctic, it really is, wilderness. And and you're experiencing pretty dark winters and pretty Mm -hmm. bright summers? Yes, very much so. In the summer, um, for quite a bit of the summer, the sun doesn't even set below the horizon. You can read a newspaper at midnight. And... In the winter, I've always wanted to do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> in the winter, it's the opposite of that. For yeah. about six weeks, the sun doesn't come over the horizon. We have daylight from about, say, 10 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. But It's, the, it's the, kind of like pre-dawn or yeah, just after Yeah, kind of like a cloudy dusk. day yeah, kind yeah. of light. I'm super intrigued by your work. Thank you. There's a lot of people making jewelry, but yours is very different from anything I've seen. And I don't consider myself like well-versed in the world of of jewelry making but 
when I saw your work on your website, it immediately caught my attention. I'm curious about the gold and the color because it's very different from the gold that you see. It's very different. Talk, talk to me about it. Well, it is different gold. And what's, what's different about the gold is it's natural gold. And by that, I mean in nature, gold is never pure. 24 karat means 99.99% gold, but that doesn't happen in nature. In nature, it's always mixed with other minerals that are molten in the same place at the same time. So our gold is 85% gold and 14.9% silver, the 0.1% mystery minerals, other, sure. <laughs> other stuff. 14 karat gold is 58% gold. So there's a big percentage of other minerals that are mixed in. And the more the higher percentage of gold, the yellower it is, and that's what caught your attention. It's it just happens purely fortuitously for me that the gold that we mine at our family gold mine is perfect for fabricating jewelry out of. You're not just a goldsmith. You're not just designing jewelry. You are connected with the source of your material, and and this is my question. How important is your connection with the source of your materials to your creative work and your creative process? It's absolutely central. I, I wouldn't be a goldsmith if I hadn't first my, been a gold miner. My husband and I lived in this wilderness area on the 40 Mile River, about 100 kilometers from Dawson City. We were trappers and commercial fishermen, basically living off the land as much as you can in the frozen Arctic. Yeah. The uh, area was the site of a gold rush that predated the Klondike gold rush. And it was mostly pretty grizzled old prospectors. In 1898, there was a gold discovery in what's now Dawson City, the the Klondike gold rush, the biggest gold rush in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And so all the old timers that had been working in the 40 mile deserted the area and went to this rich new find. When we moved there, we moved there to live in the wilderness, not to be gold miners. And talking to a, an old timer, a native guy, uh, after we had already started building our cabin there, he told us that the, the creek that we settled on, which is a tributary of the 40 Mile River, had been known as a coarse gold producer in the old days, which was totally news to us. So we, so we staked some ground and over a period of uh, a few years kind of made ourselves into gold miners, which was great for us because it meant that we had a, a source of income. We could continue to live at a, this home that we had made for ourselves in the bush. That, that was our way of life. I worked with my husband at our mine for about 20 years. At that point, the gold price cycles pretty dramatically over the decades, and it was definitely dropping quite a bit. Yeah. And yet the costs of gold mine, mining were going up. So our our sort of solution to this problem of diminishing income, harder work but less money, right. was value-added processing. Turning that ingredient, turning that material into a product A finished itself. product. Yeah. That, that was the idea behind it. Um, so we've talked a little bit about the story of the material. The material coming from the, the ground, um, we haven't really talked much about the process. Do you want to just give us a, a flyby explanation? Sure. 
<clears throat> just so to give you a little background, placer gold means free gold particles in gravel deposits. And so we're placer miners as opposed to hard rock miners. So I mean, most of the world's gold is mined in hard rock mines. So it's, it's already smaller scale. So um, basically our process is we sift through the gravel and separate the gold, which is way heavier than the normal gravel. So it's basically gravity that process sure. to separate it. And so as, as part of our mining process, what we end up with is gold dust or gold flakes. And that's what I take a, a peanut butter jar full of gold flakes from the mine to my studio gallery in Dawson City. And what I do with it there is melt it in a little porcelain crucible with a handheld propane oxygen torch, the special tip on it. And so when it becomes molten, I pour it into a, a, an open uh, cast iron mold, and I end up with a piece that kind of looks like a breadstick. Okay. And then from there, I fabricate my jewelry. I have a Fabulous, my favorite tool, it's called a rolling mill, so it's kind of like a miniature version of a giant steel mill. If you've ever made pasta by hand, you know what a, a handmade mm -hmm. pasta machine is like? Well, that's what my, my rolling mill is like, so that's really into, integral to my process. So from there, I make either gold wire or gold sheet, and that's what I fabricate the jewelry from. So it, that chain of custody thing is very true. It, it never passes out of our our hands. You know, there's a big thing about in mines where are people exploited, what happens to the earth, and none of that is a concern with yeah. me. So that's a good thing. That's fascinating, and it's, it's comforting. We, you've told us the process, the story of getting these free particles, putting them into, I love this, the peanut butter jar. <laughs> you, as a goldsmith and a gold miner and a jewelry designer, you have this really unique product which is that you know the story of this product so intimately that's right i think that's a, a really key point about what i do i kind of think of it as, as a chain of custody it passes from nature into our hands at the mine into my hands in the store in in my studio gallery in dawson city to my customers you know i think as you were saying why that interests you. I think there's another part of it too that like for example you buy a cotton shirt and it says made in Pakistan or something but you don't know how the cotton was produced. Right. You don't know what the environmental impact of that was but in my jewelry I do know exactly what the environmental impact is and it, it's kind of a big factor because large-scale world like scale gold mining can be pretty environmentally intrusive. There's chemicals used, there's a lot of land disturbed, and what we do is just almost the opposite of that. We disturb yeah. only a small amount of land at once, we do complete restoration, we don't put any chemicals into the environment. So somebody with kind of environmental awareness but still wants a gold ring when they get yeah. married, they, they can have it and feel good about it. And not everybody cares about that, but I find a lot of my customers, it's a pretty important factor. And I like this term, this phrase, you talk about the chain of custody. Mm -hmm. The story of your jewelry is, I can comprehend it. I can completely comprehend it because the connection you have to the mind. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> talk to me about how the material influences the art, the creativity part of 
your your jewelry making the limitations of the of or in the the attributes of the material how that influences your creations well it, it is definitely an important factor and it and it is it does touch on what we discussed previously about the different properties of the 20 karat gold so one of the because it's fairly high purity it's quite malleable and that means i can do a lot of uh, twisting bending hammering so that influences my design process just what i can physically do with the gold and then i'm I'm also influenced a lot by the area because it's a, a pretty special, magical place. It's mostly about wilderness there. Yeah. And, and about the, the seasons are really pronounced. Part of the, the beauty of the long Arctic winter is the Northern Lights displays, which you know everybody knows what they are, but until you experience in person, you have no idea how staggering it is to see yeah. this. I've seen them once, uh, and I could not agree with you more. Yeah, just it's, fascinating. It's, we always brush our teeth outside when we're in the bush, and that, that was, that's a big deal. You get to watch the northern lights while you're brushing your teeth at night. Oh, man, so, that's awesome. So, so, for example, I had a, w- one of my first commissions was a couple from Whitehorse that were getting married and wanted something. Could I make them wedding rings that mirrored the northern lights? So what I came up with, just this kind of, random squiggle of gold interspersed with little nuggets of gold natural gold nuggets and and spirally shapes and that really kind of set me off on i don't have to do what everybody else does what i should use my material and where i am to inform my designs nice one of my favorite pieces which i call uh, seasons of the river necklace the Yukon government put out a call for artists to submit um, projects that would maybe be purchased for the Yukon Art Permanent Collection. The challenge was fabulous. <clears throat> In this necklace... Let I'm me try to describe this necklace. It's very organic. The back two-thirds of the necklace is a chain, and the front portion is this elegant, flowing, wide... I think the word is festoon. Although the this festoon portion, it doesn't have like moving parts or chains or anything. It's just these pieces of gold that have been molded together and that are flowing with a central oxbow-like feature. And then each side reaches out to the left and right in a slightly asymmetrical yet very balanced way. It looks like a river, which is kind of the point, right? It's the seasons of the rivers, the name of this necklace. And it it has these jetties and these twists and turns. There's wide parts and narrow places. And right in the center is that oxbow feature with these four diamonds nestled right in the middle of the bend. This oxbow portion with clear ice-like diamonds represents the winter. She placed winter as the focal point, which makes sense. Winter stands out in the subarctic. And while the winters here are long and dark, and cold. She speaks about them with a real sense of warmth and nostalgia. It just as an aside, we've run dogs for years. So oh, wow. being out on the dog slid in the river and the sun just peeks over the hill and you get a this splash of sunlight just so brilliant off the, the pure white snow. So for me that, okay, that's the center. The seasons continue as you travel around the necklace. The large house-sized chunks of ice that careen down the river every spring in this area are represented by a cluster of small gold nuggets that feel like they're floating through the piece, like these 
big chunks of ice. And they lead to a sapphire, which signifies the pure water that flows freely once the melt has completed. Summer obviously follows spring. It's represented by these tightly wound spirals. It could either be the free-flowing river or, I don't know, like the sun, or maybe they represent both. As you come back around to the other side of this festoon, we get to another sapphire, which marks the end of the summer and the beginning of the refreeze that comes each autumn. It's still and calm, and it leads us back to where we began, back to the winter-inspired oxbow centerpiece. What I really like doing is focusing on either my own inspiration, like that Seasons of the River Necklace is one example of that, or working with a client, which oftentimes they push me into something that I maybe wouldn't have done or learning a new technique. So some of what I do in my shop is kind of bread and butter stuff. I make nugget stud earrings. And I think that's on the art to craft continuum falls pretty clearly in craft. I do as nice a job as I can, but I don't consider it original. Sure. That's really letting the material shine for The material is absolutely all it's about in that case. To the other end where it's it's all about design. So, you know, it's there's always a, a continuum there. And I, I what I the part I like is the design part, the challenge of working out this is how what I want to do, how am I gonna do it? You know, what how can I adapt this idea into something that's gonna work because one of the things about jewelry is it's functional it's a little different than art that hangs on the wall that can be fragile what i make has to be able to be worn as well as admired and it kind of gives me a thrill to think you know i'm hoping that some of this stuff might last for centuries and what a great idea that is some some of it probably you know the grandchildren inherit it and they take it down to the pawn shop and it gets melted down but 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 you know maybe some of it's going to survive and for me that's really inspiring too a big thank you to leslie chapman gold miner and jewelry fabricator for sharing with us her story and the story of the objects that she makes. You know, this episode is coming out the day after Valentine's Day, so maybe as you're listening to this, you're realizing that you forgot to get that special person in your life a nice piece of jewelry. You could always give them a podcast about jewelry, podcast episode. Okay, maybe not a great idea, unless this is accompanied by, you know, maybe one of Leslie's pieces kind of tells the story. Uh, that that's There's an idea a day too late. You can read more about her work and see her creations by visiting 40milegoldworkshop.ca. That's spelled out. So F-O-R-T-Y mile gold workshop. Or if you have a trip planned to Dawson City, Yukon Territory, Canada, her gallery is right there in the middle of town. You can also contact her directly. Her contact is at that website I just mentioned, which is also in the show notes in case you missed it. And uh, you can commission a piece of her custom jewelry without making a trip to the top of the planet. If you enjoyed this episode, please holler at us. You can find us at OTRQ Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter with the username at Evan McDonald. If you haven't already, please go subscribe to One Thing Real Quick. It's on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Himalaya, all the places 
where podcasts like to hang out. Also, take a minute and write a review. We love reviews. They're like the heirloom jewelry of the internet. They adorn the podcast quite literally for the life of the show, and they help people find the show as well. So much appreciation to all of you who have written a review. Also, if you missed last week's episode, you probably missed that we're doing a giveaway of some really great illustration artwork from last week's guest, Brad Woodard. There's still one week left to enter to win that grab bag. It also includes some like a t-shirt and a hat and some stickers and buttons and just like fun stuff. If you want to get more information, go to onethingrealquick.com slash giveaway for all the details. Once again, there's just about another week to enter. We'll be announcing the winner soon. Send us an email at podcast at onethingrealquick.com. And guess what? We have a message line that you can call. You can send us a voicemail by calling us. The phone number is 405 405- 373-O-T-R-Q. That's right. We got ourselves a branded phone number. That's uh, 405-373-6877 if your phone doesn't speak letters. So, uh, yeah, just call if you have something to say and uh, we'll get it. We'll listen to it. One Thing Real Quick is an independent show. It's created and produced by me, Evan McDonald. Editing help this week by John M. Craig. Don't forget to share this episode with someone else. Just don't call it a Valentine's gift. I guess that would be re-gifting because this is really my gift to you. All right, until next week, when I will have another gift of an episode just for you. All right. Leslie, one last thing before we let you go. What are you reading? Well, I'm actually reading a really interesting book right now, and I'm embarrassed to say I don't exactly know the true title. It's either Blue Horizon or Blue Sea. But what's really cool about it is this this guy's following Captain James Cook's voyages of discovery around the world. But he's what he said is he's turning the telescope around, so he's he's looking at what impact did James Cook have in his voyages of, quote, discovery, on the areas that he looked at. So the part I've read so far, he's been to Tahiti. Oh, okay. And it's way different than when the the paradise that it was when he showed up. So really, yeah. really interesting book, very written in a, a nice style, but but really deep about the whole imperialism, colonialism thing. So it's a nonfiction. It's nonfiction. It, it's non nonfiction. Yeah. yeah. Who's the author? I don't remember that either, so not very informative. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> uh, okay. We'll look it up afterwards, and okay. I'll put it in the show notes. So if people are like, "Oh, James Cook, I got to check this out," they can find it. So. Uh, I'll, I'll check it out and send you an email with the actual information <laughs> <Perfect>. about it. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, from the future, it's me again. The book is called Blue Latitudes, and the author is Tony Horwitz. Horwitz, Horwitz. I don't know how to say it. It's in the show notes. All right, that's it for, that's completely it for this week.